Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, my colleague and longtime City Journal contributing editor, Kay Heimowitz, will interview another writer for the magazine, Ralph Manguel, to discuss his newest piece from the winter 2020 issue, entitled Fathers, Families, and Incarceration. You can find it on the City Journal website, and we'll be sure to link to it in the podcast description. As our listeners are probably aware, one of the criticisms of the criminal justice system made by both radical activists and conservative reformers, at least some, is that incarceration tears families apart by taking parents and siblings out of their homes. Ralph's essay looks at the evidence for this, which suggests that jailing criminals is often better on balance for their families, especially for children. It's a fascinating piece. That's all for the introduction. We'll take a quick break, and then the conversation between Kay Heimowitz and Ralph Manguel will begin. We hope you enjoy. Hello, this is Kay Heimowitz, Senior Fellow, William E. Simon Fellow of the Manhattan Institute contributing editor at City Journal. And I'm going to be talking today to Raphael Manguel, who is also a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the director of legal policy. Deputy director. Deputy director you of promoted legal policy. Me. Yes, I, right. That's right. And also contributing editor at City Journal. Many, many hats. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, criminal justice reform, but a very specific topic. One of the, one of the primary arguments that justice, uh, we, we make in the uh, criminal justice debate is that incarceration breaks up families. And uh, the largest concern uh, is about men because they are, what, 95 percent of, 90% 90% of, the of the incarcerated population. So the concern is that many children are being deprived of their dads. Now, I'm no slouch when it comes to worrying about fatherless families. I've been working on this issue for much of my career, but it's always... Uh, troubled me about whether this made sense when you consider the kinds of fathers that children didn't have in the house and whether they were better off maybe without those fathers. Uh, and so Raphael was, smart, uh, was um, uh, smart enough to pursue this issue uh, in a recent article for City Journal. I think it's just out today. And uh, to look at, actually look at the research, there is some research that would try to answer the question of whether children really are so much worse off when their fathers are incarcerated. The very obvious question being, may, are these guys men who would be good fathers to begin with? Okay, Raphael. So tell us a little bit about what you found as you started looking into this question. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so again, as you mentioned, this has been one of the kind of go-to arguments of the criminal justice reform crowd. And it's, you know, we're in the middle of a presidential election uh, cycle right now. And I found that among the, you know, the most popular candidates, this was something that has been parroted over and over and over again. And everyone kind of takes it for granted, I think because it's intuitive, right? The idea that if you remove a father, this is a potential income earner, a potential, you know, contributor to the household duties, 
a potential role model for the children, that you know, the effects are going to be a net negative. But uh, you know, it always struck me as an argument that relied on a very important assumption, which, as you mentioned, is that these men are likely to be good fathers, are likely to be reliable sources of economic stability, um, as opposed to net drains on a house's fisc, for example. And so I, I remembered, um, I don't know, got to be about five, six years ago now, um, when uh, thinking about the, the question of, of, of fatherlessness, um, especially in, in low-income minority neighborhoods, um, coming across some really interesting research by someone named Sarah Jaffe. And, um, you know, she's done a lot of really amazing work in this space. And one of her studies uh, pretty clearly found that the benefits of a two-parent household could actually be negated um, by the presence of a parent who was characterized by a history of antisocial behavior. And I remembered reading that, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I wonder what the rate of antisocial behavior is among men who tend to get incarcerated. And so that's that's kind of where I started. Yash, it should be pretty high, it's, I would think. It's quite high. Um, so there was a study in The Lancet that found almost half of prisoners surveyed across 19 countries um, were diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Um, another study in the Journal of Translational Psychiatry found um, that while the general public has a rate of antisocial personality disorder of about 1 to 3 percent, that within prisons, um, depending on where you were and the population you were looking at, the rate ranged from 40 to 70 percent. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is really, really important and something that doesn't ever really get acknowledged in um in the debate. And so um, I, that, that was really my starting point. I started doing a little more digging and found lots of, 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 of research in the, in the psychology and sociology space on, on the transmission of antisocial behavior from generation to generation. And what it consistently showed is that when you expose children within a vulnerable, a vulnerable age group, so you know before they're around five to seven mm -hmm. years old, to highly antisocial parents, those kids become very much more likely to exhibit been antisocial behaviors themselves in later life. And that um, antisocial behavior, they call it externalizing, um, is more likely to be associated with criminality in later life. It's more likely to be associated with poorer socioeconomic outcomes, poorer performance in school, um, poorer relationships, etc. And, um, you know, it's something that I think really has to get looked at in terms of the incarceration debate. And um, one of the things I was really surprised to find is that there's actually been some recent research mm -hmm. on this specific question done by some criminologists. Um, so there's one study out of, out of uh, the state of Ohio, um, for example, that found uh, that for parents, the children who had parents who were incarcerated. Now, I should step back and just really kind of give a sense of how these sorts of studies are done. But mm -hmm. they're not just comparing parents, uh, kids who have parents in jail and kids who don't. I hope right? not. Yes. They, they have to actually, you know, add in some controls. And so what they look at are populations of children with parents who are, quote, on the margins of incarceration, right? So they do a kind of random judge assignment uh, study where whether or not a parent gets incarcerated depends very heavily on the judge to whom that case is assigned, right? So this is generally a population of parents who are committing lower level infractions that are not things like robbery, you know, where there's an actual question as to whether they might get incarcerated or not that mm -hmm. is responsive to how punitive a given mm -hmm. judge is. And when you control, um, when, when, you, when you have that control in place and you look at the kids 
with the same types of parents and you break those kids up between those who have parents who get incarcerated and those who don't. Interestingly, um, there's been a lot of, of studies that have found that the kids whose parents are incarcerated have significantly better outcomes on a host of measures, including criminality in later life, including educational attainment, performance on standardized exams, um, and socioeconomic outcomes You know, at the age of 18 and, and uh, um, later on in, in maturity. And I just thought, well, wow, I mean, this is really missing from the debate. And what I wanted to do with this essay is just kind of put this information out there so that, uh, you know, readers understand that this is a topic that is much more complicated than I think uh, the other side lets on. Yeah. I mean, to me, I'm listening to you, and um, it's in no way a criticism of you, but I'm thinking, duh. (laughs) We know that children turn out a lot like the parents and learn so much from their parents in those early years. Um, I'm wondering why this wasn't more, it hasn't been more apparent and more of a question in the minds of many of the policy people who are uh, promo- who are promoting the idea that this has been such a, a bad uh, approach to um, uh, ch- such with such bad ac- outcomes for children. Right. Um, just to repeat that, that final study that you just referred to, those those people were in um, prison for fairly minor crimes, right. relatively speaking, right. and even those children seem to be better off without. Now, I'm wondering if part of the issue that this hasn't, the reason that this has question hasn't been asked, and that so many people seem perfectly comfortable with the idea that the men who are incarcerated will be good fathers, and it's better to have them at home, uh, is whether uh, people are mistaking the uh, the problem of the drug offenses with all incarceration, it's not nearly that. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. There's actually a really interesting uh, role that drug offenses play in this literature, right? So when we look at uh, the prevalence of antisocial personality disorder among incarcerated individuals, the individuals who tend to have a greater likelihood of, say, violent criminal offending mm-hmm. thereafter or have a greater likelihood of being abusive in their relationships are those who have ASPD, antisocial personality disorder, that is comorbid with a substance use disorder, um, such that the combination of those two diagnoses is actually associated with significantly worse outcomes, uh, both for those individuals as well as their children. And um, what's really interesting about that is that the lower-level drug offenders tends to be the sort of hyper-focus of the criminal justice reform debate, right? You often hear right. people saying, well, these are, are, are people for whom incarceration provides no tangible benefit because they're nonviolent, right. they're right. lower-level, right. they're, you know, they're victims of their own addictions, et cetera. And what doesn't get considered is that this is actually the population uh, that when they have children is most likely um, to uh, have a negative effect on those children through their presence in the home. And uh, it's really a a point of tension that I don't think has really Mm -hmm. been confronted yet um, by a lot of criminal justice reformers. What kind of drugs are we talking about, though? So it's really uh, a mix, but usually harder drugs, things like, you know, methamphetamines, um, heroin, crack cocaine, um, where, uh, you know, the 
the psychosis that's associated with right. substance use when combined right. with that antisocial disorder really does manifest itself often in very aggressive outbursts, um, very harsh punishments, a coldness. Um, and, and it's a really... Uh, really sad literature uh, to read because, yeah. you know, the, the children in these homes are, are really just kind of at the mercy um, of the state to make a decision one way or the other. And um, while it may feel good for some to be able to say, well, we kept this family together, I, I think more attention needs to be paid to the possibility yes. that that's not yeah. always a good thing. Yeah, you're reminding me that I, I just saw an article uh, I believe it was in the in the New York Times, but I'm not sure about uh, a program in Kentucky. Was it where the children under up to you know as young as six are being trained to use the uh, the whatever it is the antidote to um, Narcan? And, yeah, that's right, Narcan uh, for in case one of their parents is in need of it. So is that is that a good situation for kids? But address the uh, issue that I think is probably in some listeners' minds about marijuana right. and the arrest factor there. I mean, our, we, we often get the impression from uh, people who are in this area that there are large numbers of people in jail particularly men in jail just for marijuana use. Right. And that's just patently false, right? I mean, if you look at the state prison population, for example, um, only about 14% of the state prison population is in primarily on a drug offense. Um, I say primarily because that means that that's the offense for which they're serving the most time. And with that number, uh, one thing that people often forget to account for is the fact that a conviction record, an official conviction record, usually mm -hmm. understates the offense that mm -hmm. the person actually committed because we know that about 95% of cases are pled down, down mm -hmm. and so you know charges mm -hmm. are dropped or modified. Mm -hmm. So it almost always reflects something less than what the person actually did. But even if you look at just that drug offending population, it's less, it's about three to three and a half percent of the prison population that's in for just possession, which is what you would be in for if it was just for marijuana mm -hmm. personal use. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that reflects possession of all drugs, right? So marijuana is an even smaller subset of that, right? On Rikers Island here in New York, um, you can, at least before uh, bail reform went into effect, you could literally count on one hand the number of people who would have been in Rikers Island on a given day simply for a marijuana-related offense. And almost always when those incarcerations happen, it's more uh, a function of the fact that they have very extensive criminal histories mm -hmm. where this is, you know, mm -hmm. one of a very long list mm -hmm. of, of, of uh, transgressions that this person's mm -hmm. committed. And, um, yeah, it, it, it really isn't a factor in driving the prison population. So when we talk about people who are incarcerated in America today, we're really talking about people who have had more than one second chance. We're talking about people who are engaged in a, a, a wide variety of antisocial behaviors, right. often violent and even if they're not in for a violent offense at this moment, they've often committed a violent offense in mm -hmm. the past or will go on to commit a violent mm -hmm. offense in the future. I mean, just with drug offenders, for example, um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did a longitudinal study of uh, more than 400,000 prisoners released in 2005, and it studied them for, it followed them for nine years. And what it found was that more than 75% of drug offenders were going to get rearrested for a non-drug crime after their release. More than a third of those drug offenders were rearrested for a violent crime specifically. Um, so the idea that, the, that this is a largely nonviolent population, I, I really uh, 
think is one of the bigger misconceptions in the criminal justice reform debate. And, and one more sort of data point just to put a finer uh, point on it is in, in uh, 2017, the Baltimore Police Department identified 118 murder suspects. Of that 118, 70% had a prior drug offense in their criminal history mm -hmm. somewhere. So, um, you know, again, when we say drug offender, I think, uh, you know, the tendency for people who are not necessarily versed in the data uh, is to think of this sort of, you know, weak, meek, um, you know, individual who's not particularly harmful, right. um, but that, that tends not to be the case. And when we're looking at parents um, who were abusive towards their children, for example, um, the combination of, of ASPD with a substance use disorder right. is often very much a factor. And right. uh, it's something that people really need to right. contend with, I think. I don't, is there any data on how many of the people, of the, of the incarcerated men, have a history of domestic violence? Um, not that I'm aware of, although I'm sure that number uh, uh, is able to be gotten somewhere. Um, but domestic violence is, is, at least in the jail population, um, is often you know a pretty significant um, right. driver for for uh, incarceration. It's not a it's not a small portion. Um, you know, unfortunately. Domestic violence situations um, will often result in an outcome that doesn't involve an incarceration because you'll have, um, you know, often a female uh, victim, you know, sort of with re retract the charge or mm -hmm. decide not to cooperate. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's often a very complicated, um, you know, sort of emotional situation at home. And uh, so, you know, that's just another area where I think you'll find um, – you know, when you look into some of these these cases where you know kids are abused or harmed, right? There's this new Netflix series now that's uh, that's very popular on the case of Gabriel Fernandez out in, in Los Angeles. It's the eight year old who was murdered by his his uh, mother and stepfather, and you know there was this long history of abuse, and again, you know, the mother had very much uh, involvement with gangs and drugs throughout her life, and. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 a hard thing to confront, but again, nothing was really done until it got to that, you know, point of no return. And so even with the domestic violence data, I think it often understates the scope of that mm -hmm. problem. Mhm. Mm yeah, it's it's puzzling that so many people who would be so alarmed by domestic violence uh, and its effect on women are not thinking about this in relation to children living with fathers who are uh, who are just coming out of jail or have been in jail. Right. But I, I, just to uh, sum up some of what you're saying, I sure. think it's important to repeat, the, peop the, the men who are in jail, who are fathers, are very unlikely to be simply guilty of smoking a few joints. Right. That's not what they're in jail for. Correct. Uh, so that's not what we're talking about. And if I remember correctly, um, the percentage of in state uh, prisons of men who are in jail for violent crimes is quite high. It's 55 percent of yeah. the overall population. Yeah. And again, that's just based on the official conviction records, right? I mean, which often understates yes, those I things. See. Yeah. And it doesn't account for the percentage of the prison population that has a violent criminal history that may be serving time for sure. a right. property offense um, or a weapons charge, right? right? So like, for example, illegal weapons possession right. would not be considered a violent offense, but if you are I a see. known gang member with a Glock in your pants and you get locked up for it, right. chances are, um, right. you know, it, it wasn't for a, uh, you know, um, nonviolent purpose. Right. And, yes, and uh, do you want that guy taking care of the kids? Exactly. Well, I mean, unfortunately, the answer may seem 
to be. Yes, there was a case um, in in the Bronx not too long ago, and I, and I, I mentioned this in in my piece, where this guy named Shaquille Chandler, he's you know uh, done almost a decade in prison for um, uh, I think it was manslaughter for a 2006 shooting where someone was killed. He was you know a, a verified member of the Crips and a very long criminal history, and uh, was arrested recently by the NYPD in in response to a shooting. So they were responding to the scene of a shooting. Uh, they were alerted to it by shot spotter and uh, when they pulled up they saw uh, the subject kicking a firearm that was used in the shooting um, (laughs) under a car according to police and um, when he was up for his preliminary hearing uh, the judge in Bronx criminal court named Janine Johnson actually released him without bail citing among other things the fact that he had sole custody of his child and you know when I read this I thought well my god (laughs) Is this really the, yeah, the really. sort of person that we yeah. want raising a child? Yeah. I mean, you know, I understand that these are just charges at this point. And there's been no conviction, but there's a long criminal history here. Um, you know, it seems to me, based on, on the statements of police and, and the reporting done in this case, that there's a pretty good uh, chance yeah. that this man was involved. And uh, the idea that that would be uh, a driver of an actual criminal justice outcome in the city of New yeah. York, which has generally been pretty tough on gun offenders, um, you know, is is really something that that I think is scary, and you know, but also not that surprising when you consider the direction of this debate. I think maybe what's driving people, including that judge, is just such suspicion of the juvenile, of the justice system, that the assumption is always in favor of the uh, defendant. Right. Um, that having said that, I should we should tell our listeners how we will how whether we're really against criminal justice reform I'm not no, I doubt no. you are No either. no I do think there are very many areas ripe for reform I also tend to think especially when it comes to incarceration that the reforms that I think are probably best for us as a society are likely to be more on the margins than what some of the, uh, of the more popular voices in this movement are calling for. Um, you have Van Jones, you know, who uh, runs the hashtag Cut50 initiative that wants yeah. to see an across-the-board reduction in the prison population by 50%. That, I think, is is impossible mm-hmm. to do without exposing society lot, to a lot, significant yes. threat um, on the part of, of, of yes. people who are in prison today, all of whom pose you know, a, a real high probability of reoffending. I mean, one of the things that people don't understand is that 83% of released state prisoners will go on to reoffend at some point. I mean, that's a desistance rate. Yeah, I think the what people will often do is say, well, they learned that in prison. Right. Well, that often fails to explain two things. One is the crime that they're in prison for to yes. begin with. And second, the fact that Almost all of them have likely had one or two, if not three or four chances before they were actually incarcerated, right? A prison sentence is actually a relatively rare uh, sanction in the criminal justice system, um, especially for a first offense. So across all state felony convictions, only 40% result in a post-conviction prison sentence. So our colleague Heather McDonald likes to call that uh, a prison sentence a lifetime achievement award for persistence in criminal offender <laughs> because it usually takes a while before yeah. the system comes down, especially if you're a juvenile offender, right? So there's so many pretrial diversion programs and probation sentences and uh, supervised release programs, et cetera, that people will often go through before mm-hmm. um, they're they're sent to prison um, for, for a long time. I mean, unless it's a, a very serious crime. So um, yeah, it, it really is um, 
you know, very misunderstood area. But no, I, I think there are plenty of opportunities for reform. Yeah. I recognize that there's some subset of the prison population whose incarceration probably doesn't serve mm-hmm. a legitimate penological mm-hmm. end. And we should be, you know, making sure we identify those people and letting them out. But uh, I think that's a much smaller scale mm-hmm. endeavor than what a lot of mm-hmm. people want. Yeah. I would just uh, wanted to add one piece of information that I uh, stumbled across some years ago when I was doing a little bit of work on the question of family breakdown and incarceration. What I found was that particularly when you're looking at the black family, um, by the time the war on drugs really took off, which was 1980, Mm -hmm. uh, that's when you start to see a real increase in the number of, uh, in the percentage of men incarcerated. Uh, by that time, uh, 50% of black children were being born to unmarried mothers yeah. already. Right. So, and that that had been a huge jump in the previ- in the previous several decades. Right. Um, and in fact, during a large part of the war on drugs, when you saw the biggest jump, some of that period, the breakdown or the non-marital birth rate, at any rate. Uh, had stabilized. So right. there really is no correlation or in, and no reason to think that the uh, problems with the family uh, that we see, particularly among the poor and, uh, and uh, low-income people more generally, uh, has anything to do with, uh, with incarceration. Yeah. You know, I think that that argument has always just gotten the direction of the causation wrong. Exactly. Right? I, it would always seemed more probable to me that the things that would lead to that breakdown were often the same things that would lead to incarceration, right? That antisocial mm-hmm. um, behavior, um, the sort of rejection of societal norms. Um, you know, those are often things that are associated with making the decision to abandon a family or to, you know, to have, uh, you know, children out of wedlock um, and and to take those risks. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a complicated... Um, it's a complicated field. It's a complicated literature, um, but it is robust, and it, it, it just really is something I hope um, people start to sort of take a step back and, and, and uh, grapple with more right, um, right. because, unfortunately, as, as things stand now, it's, it's almost taken for granted mm-hmm. that, that incarceration is the main driver of this, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not sure that's the case. Right. Um, and one more question um, and, uh, is... How many of the men who are in prison are married? Very, very few. Yeah. Um, now, uh, there are many who have children. Um, yeah. there, was a, there was a data point um, uh, that I cite in, in the article um, by Senator Mike Lee, who observed in a speech recently that a majority of prisoners are also parents, yes, um, many of whom live with their minor children. And he says this kind of, you know, lamenting that fact. Um, and, you know, I understand that he where he's coming from. And, and I, I think that most of the people who make this argument are coming from a sincere place. Um, but just, again, um, you know, the decisions that landed them in prison are pretty good indicators, it seems to me, that we should at least um, hold some doubt as to whether they're going to be positive right. influences on on, the, on their children. And from what I've been familiar with, family churn among the poor, uh, I would really question how many of those men were actual uh, biofathers of right. those children. They could have been partners of, uh, That's right. uh, you know, we have a big problem in that population with what they call multi-partner fertility. That's right. So it's hard to know who's the father That's right. and who's not. So, um, 
Yeah, though that data also, I think, raises some questions about this whole field. Yeah. Um, you know, there was one final uh, point that I wanted to make about the study. The I think you said it was an Ohio study mm-hmm. uh, that showed that the children were um, better off, actually. Some children were better off when their fathers were not living at home and were in jail instead. Right. Uh, and you made the point that the researchers found that there was a, it was the deterrent effect. I thought that was so interesting. It was really interesting. Um, So what they found, right, so they studied both parental and sibling incarceration in that study. And what they found was with regard to siblings, the positive effects of the incarceration were concentrated during the time the sibling was incarcerated. And from that, they inferred that it was really that influences removal from the household that was allowing that child to thrive in this in, in these areas during that time period. Whereas the, um, the benefits of the parental incarceration were actually pretty far removed from the incarceration itself. They didn't show up immediately. And the, uh, the working theory is, is that the mechanism that led to that is that the positive effects were really driven by the deterrent impact of seeing mm-hmm. the sort of weight of the criminal justice system come down on a parent that in later life affected the decisions that that child was making. Whereas because uh, uh, there's so much of an influence that a sibling will have because of the closeness in age, um, that the benefits were really concentrated in the short run. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. Now, it could just very well be that, you know, the parents in that study, as I mentioned earlier, were lower level offenders. Right, right. So that might look different if we were dealing with, you know, kind of more serious criminals. But, yeah, I I included that in there because I I do think it's a really interesting – part of the study because it's not just that, you know, we're talking about the potential benefits of removing an antisocial force from the home, but there are other ways in which that incarceration might also benefit right. not just that child, but also the community at large. And, and you know, and right. the ripple effects of these are often beyond what we can understand and quantify, but they are real nonetheless. And right. so um, it, it, it was an important wrinkle that um, I thought was interesting to know. Yeah, you often hear that um, uh, the punishment doesn't have any deterrent effect. Right. But you wonder whether it has an indirect inter- deterrent effect That's exactly uh, right. on, the, on a younger generation, if not the uh, people committing the crimes. So, well, this is very interesting material, and I hope we can bring a little bit of common sense uh, into the uh, reform movement, uh, which we both approve of in many ways. Yes, ma'am. But when it comes to uh, citing how um, much the uh, incarceration has been bad for children, well, we'll have to really uh, make that a much more complicated discussion. Indeed. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.